Inspiring stories, practical applications. Doing ministry well. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash doingministrywell. All right. Thank you, everyone, for checking into another episode of Doing Ministry Well. we got another living room session going on here in uh, beautiful Manoa Valley. The sun is out, and uh, it's a good day. So I'm Jim Baker, your host, and uh, we are joined here today with... Uh, by Rick Thompson. Rick, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, Rick, I have never been privileged enough to actually sit in on some of your lectures. I know you're here teaching. In the you're kidding me. Things. You never heard it? I have not. I, I have thought not. I saw you a couple times, at least in the back of the room, when you'd be like taking pictures. That now, is true. So you've probably true. heard a few syllables <laughs> anyway, because I know I've seen you in the classroom at times past, right. but anyway. Yeah, what I what I love about uh, your teaching is I think you're the most talked about teacher because you really rile people up. Well, I try. <laughs> Actually, that's not exactly true. I'm not trying to rile them up. What I'm trying to do is to get them to think, yeah. which has become somewhat of a lost art yeah. uh, in not only in Christian culture, but in all of our culture. We're more into indoctrination than we are thinking things through. And yeah. so that's my goal is to get students to to think. Not necessarily agree with me, right. but, but to think. Oh, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we need that. Um, let's just start out with the first question. Rick, how long have you been in ministry? Ah, well, um, that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, when we when we get to, uh, to the, the you, I know you're going to ask me about three three points, important things in doing ministry well, Mm -hmm. and I'll be able to elaborate on it a little bit there. But for the time being, the short answer to your question is is that that, uh, essentially since the time I was saved, and I didn't come from a Christian family, I got saved at about 19 years old. And when I was off at college at uh, Montana State University, I was a cowboy in those days, believe it or not. And um, you wouldn't know what to look at me today. (laughs) And so... That was uh, 43 years ago, and so uh, at 19 I got saved uh, there at college. I immediately uh, joined Campus Crusade for Christ, and Mm -hmm. so I was uh, doing doing ministry then as a student. Mm -hmm. But you know, going out with our appointments and going through the four spiritual law Mm -hmm. books. Um, I won't bore you with all the details, but uh, my life up until that time, I had that that. that encounter with Jesus wasn't all that it should be, and so I hadn't uh, been doing very well in school, so I actually flunked out. And so what happened is I went back to where I came from, which, you know, I'm telling you I'm a cowboy, and here I am in Montana at MSU, but I came from Southern California. So I go back down to Southern California. This is now 1973. It's right in the the beginning of the Jesus movement, the big revival amongst all the flower children and the hippies and the the counterculture in the late 60s and and, uh, early 70s. And uh, immediately got hooked up with uh, with the, the Calvary Chapel that was meeting in the circus tent in in, uh, in uh, uh, Costa Mesa, California. And uh, I lived about 30 miles from there with my parents at that time. And uh, since uh, we didn't, uh, uh, it was impractical to to drive to church all the time. We went on Sunday morning, Sunday night. Everybody went to the big tent. But home Bible studies grew up all over the the uh, Southern California area, 
And over a period of months, the next thing you know, I'm a 19-year-old, uh, been saved, you know, for maybe, you know, six, eight months. And I'm leading a home Bible study in Long Beach, California with a couple other guys, wow. which over the next two years grew into a church of about 400. Wow. And I'm pastoring, <laughs> pastoring this church. And from there, I, do you want a little bit of the history? Where, I, where did yeah. I go from there? Yeah. So <clears throat> was uh, was there and um, uh, for uh, a number of years, uh, got married. And as part of that, uh, we decided we wanted to go and, and uh, hook up with with. Uh, with youth with a mission, so uh, went and did that. Did did uh, uh, school of evangelism in Lausanne, Switzerland. Stayed there for for about eight months. Went back to Cal California. Hooked back up, not with my home church, but affiliated with the Calvary Chapel Ministries, and I taught in their Bible school up in Twin Peaks, California. So I was one of the instructors up there for I gosh I can't even remember two or three sessions like that. Then moved down to San Diego and worked for the Calvary Chapel San Diego uh, with Pastor Mike McIntosh, and they had a, a Bible school down there that was more missions-oriented, and I felt that was a better fit for me. So I went down there, and I taught in their uh, school, what they called it, uh, uh, gosh, San Diego School of Evangelism, it was called. Okay. So I taught uh, a couple sessions there, then went back into YWAM, and uh, was was a, a, a full-time YWAMer until about 2001. So that was you know over 20 years that I spent in uh, in youth with a mission. And uh, now I still I'm no longer uh, full-time affiliated with YWAM, uh, but am uh, have a photography business and uh, teach uh, when I get invited. That's awesome. I work for myself, so I can get away whenever I want. Nice, nice. Man, the Jesus movement just sounds like such an amazing time. It would have been a f fun to be a fly on the wall during that time. Were you connected with Danny Lehman or Steve Gregg at all during that time? I feel like um, you know, it's it's funny. I didn't know I didn't know Danny then. Uh -huh. um, uh, the 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 guys I was hooked up with back in those days were like Greg Laurie and Tom Stipe, and uh, of course I worked for Chuck Smith, who uh, recently has left us. Uh, and uh, and others there, so it was really early on in the ministry. Honestly, I'm not I'm not sure how far back how far back Danny Danny goes. But you're right about the Jesus movement, and I, I'd have to say from my experience, you know, of, of over 40 years being involved in ministry and kind of having my finger in what's going on around the place, that really was the last real revival that I know of, and it truly was. I mean, it's, it, it was like, we used to we used to go out in evangelism, doing street evangelism. I'm, I'm in Long Beach, California. We usually went down to the beaches. We'd go to Huntington Pier and all these different places. We'd go out, just a handful of us, and on any night that we went out, if 10 people didn't get saved, that was a bad night. Huh. You know, wow. it's not, nowadays you go out, you do evangelism. I mean, you might go out 10 times and be lucky if, you know, if, if one person came to the Lord, but God was moving in such a tremendous way. It was almost like, like you know, when you get off an airplane and uh, you're, you're, you're coming out to the baggage area, how you'll, there'll be people standing there with a sign that says Mr. Jones or whatever like that, so you yeah. could go to them. Well, it was almost like you could almost stand on the street like that with a little sign that said Jesus, and people would run up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? Wow. It was wow. so simple. God was moving in a remarkable way, and it was re really a privilege to be a part of it. And I would have missed it if I'd stayed in Montana. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to sit there and say it was God's plan that I screwed up in school <laughs> and, and flunked out. You know, that certainly wasn't his fault. 
But um, it worked out good for me getting back in there and getting hooked up with the Calvary movement and being a part of the of the Jesus movement. The funny thing about it, though, is is that, you know, I was like a fish out of water, though, because this was, you know, amongst the, the flower children, you know, right. so they've all got be- beards and long hair and wearing beads and striped shirts and paisley pants and all that kind of stuff. I'm wearing a Stetson hat, Tony Lama boots, uh, in, my, in my Wrangler jeans. Uh, so little by little, I kind of shed the uh, <clears throat> the country uh, western look, yeah. and uh, got a little bit more relevant there. But it was a it was a fantastic time. What do you think the reason for that uh, movement being so successful was? Was it just uh, a time in America's culture where people were just ready for that, or or was there something specific to the to what God was doing specifically during the Jesus movement that made that so effective? Well, I mean, obviously there had to be lead-ups to it that I'm not even aware of. I'm sure there were people over over time that had been praying for yeah. for revival and praying. I mean, especially back in those days, the contrast <clears throat> was so different between the young and the old back then. I mean, the contrast today, if you look at the way young people are and the way their parents are, <clears throat> there's there's not the, 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 the huge contrast that there was back in the in the late 60s and in early 70s where where a church in those days was still uh, you know a, a suit and tie affair and uh, either a piano or an organ uh, in there very very structured didn't mat- really matter what denomination you were in whether it was one of the mainline denominations or one of the full gospel churches it was you know pretty much the same and all of these young people of the counterculture just did not fit in at all the the, the gap was enormous right. well um men like chuck smith and if he was i don't want to you know just tout him he wasn't the only one of course mm-hmm. but the people that came along and saw that and said you know what we're not going to make these people have to conform to this mm-hmm. And he just opened up his church and said, come as you are. And that's what they did. They came as, as they were. So, I mean, it was a combination of, of, of obviously somewhere, someplace, there must have been prayer warriors that were preparing the ground for this to happen. And then God moved sovereignly. And who, at the end of the day, who really knows how that happens? I mean, right. if we knew how that happened, we'd have revivals more often. Right. And a lot of us pray for it. And we hope for it. And we dream for it and all those things. But ultimately, you know, God moves when God moves. And I just happened to be in the place where he was moving at that time. And uh, this circus tent was just incredible. And these people came in. And uh, it was just a question of of accepting people for who they were and then trusting young people in ministry, which is also one of the, the great successes of Youth of the Mission in Lauren Cunningham. Or instead of saying, you know, well, you can't be involved in ministry until, you know, you've done, you know, Bible school and then seminary and then this and that and then intern this and that and the other thing. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. Those right. are all wonderful things. But to be able to trust young people and say, do it. I was, uh, I was a, a 20-year-old pastor uh, with no, no uh, formal Bible training at that time. In the meantime, while I was doing that, in fact, I was different than a lot of the Calvary pastors because I decided I wanted to get educated, and I, went, and I, I went, to, went, went to Bible school. So I'm going to Bible college while I'm pastoring the church. But there was a trusting of young people, trusting them to get out, and, and, and uh, that was the success, of I think, of, of the Jesus movement and the spread 
uh, of, of all of those churches, as well as the, the early success to this day of, of Youth with a Mission. Hmm. That's, that's uh, I, yeah, I need to pick up a book or something about uh, that time period. Well, you know, there is a book that was written, and I'm just trying to, it almost escapes me what the name of it was, but somebody wrote a book uh, about, about the Jesus movement and the founding of, of Calvary Chapel. Uh, that's probably available yeah. someplace, and I'm sure that there's church historians now that have looked at it from from that perspective. I haven't actually, you know, read up on much of it, but I'm sure that there's actually a lot of people have looked at that and yeah. can probably give you a more in depth answer as to how all that happened. You right. know, the, the short answer is God moved, <laughs> and it was just great being there yeah. when it happened. Yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. Um, what are you? Let's talk a little bit about the teaching that you're you're doing right now this week with the students, because uh-huh. um, I feel like that's really the push of your your current ministry right now. It is. Um, yeah, just share a little bit about what you're really trying to drive home in, in those classes. Right. Well, <laughs> the problem that I see in the church today is that. We have a church culture where we have authority figures that stand at the front. The job of the congregation, now I'm exaggerating here for effect, sure, right? Sure. So, yeah. so I don't want anybody to be offended here. Of course, you can never open your mouth and not offend some people. <laughs> but this, it's not my purpose here to be offensive, and I'm, I am exaggerating for the purpose of illustration. Our job as the pew sitters are to essentially do that. We sit in in rows, looking at the back of the head in front of you, and our job is to occasionally wipe the drool off of our chin and have an authority figure stand in front and tell us what to believe. Um, I don't think that that ultimately works works well. And and, uh, what I'm trying to do is to encourage young people to think and to not let other people do their thinking for them. And that... Uh, you know, you, you can go up to a, a room full of Christians, you get a room full of Christians and say, take out a piece of paper and write down 10 things that you believe. Most people don't have any problem with that. Some people, anytime you ask them, you know, <laughs> take out a piece of paper, write something down, they get a little, you know, educationally traumatized. Right, right. But usually you can get over that. Most people can come up with 10 things that they believe mm-hmm. without any big deal. But now if I say to them, now tell me why you believe those things. Mm-hmm. That's where the trouble comes in. Yeah. And uh, if they're honest, the answer will be something like, because I do. Right. Uh, because my pastor told me, because my parents told me. Most Christians don't know why they're Christians. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, is that they, many of them, have become Christians the same way a Muslim becomes a Muslim, and a Hindu becomes a Hindu, and a Buddhist becomes a Buddhist. They live in a Buddhist culture, have a Buddhist family, uh, and so what is the path of least resistance for them when they're going to be religious as they embrace those things? They don't take a step back saying there's a lot of voices out there in the world saying this is the way and this is the truth. There's a lot of books out there that claim to be the words of God. Well, why is the Bible the word of God and not the Quran or not the Bhagavad Gita? Or, or whatever it is we might be, be talking about here. Is it just because we're born in America and that's the book that we're familiar with? Right. There have to be reasons 
why we're right and everybody else is wrong. Because if you ask Christians, you know, how many of you know that Buddhism is not true? All they all raise their hands. Right. Now tell me something about Buddhism. You know, all you see is blank stairs and you hear crickets. Right. And you sit there, how can you know that something that you know absolutely nothing about is wrong? So I'm trying to get people to think. I challenge them and say, why, why do you believe what you believe? And particularly from the context of saying, this, hearing you through the mission, we aren't just sitting in pews. Our DTS program, as these young people come to us, we input in them for, for 12 weeks or so with our, our different teachings and the things that we do, our discipleship program. And then we are sending them out in ministry. And it's almost always cross-cultural. Right. So it's not like they're going to uh, you know, uh, Des Moines, Iowa right. to do ministry. They're going to be going to Nepal or to Cambodia or to, to uh, the, the Amazon or someplace like that where people are there that currently believe something that is completely different from what they believe. And by the way, we're encouraging young people to go places like the Arab world. And the thing that we don't take for granted is, is that most of us, I mean virtually all of us in, the, in America, Canada, the Western world that are Christian, we haven't paid any price for being a Christian. It's virtually cost us nothing. Oh, sure, maybe you got made fun of a few times in school or some, some of the kids, you know, called you Holy Joe or whatever like that. I mean, if that's persecution, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but we are going out into places where if people believe what we're telling them, that we're right and they're wrong, that our gospel is the truth and it's the only truth and what they believe has to be abandoned and that they have to, to, to accept Christ as their Savior. They could lose their families. They could lose their livelihood. They could lose their lives. And we're seeing that right now as, as we're seeing in, in, in the Middle East, particularly in, in, in Iraq, where, where essentially the Christian population there is being exterminated. Exterminated. Uh, I think that if we're going to go tell people that they need to embrace what we're telling them at that kind of a cost, we should at least have some reasons for doing it besides saying, well, I asked Jesus to come into my life and I got goosebumps. Well, that's wonderful. Goosebumps are wonderful. Better have some reasons why Christianity is the truth. Because at the end of the day, if all we have is our experience and life is nothing but an experience contest, then how do you differentiate one experience from another? Yeah, that's good. Because there are many New Agers and many Hindus and all that that have had some pretty profound experiences. In fact, I know people that don't uh, uh, hold to the gospel that have had more profound, if you want to call it that, experiences than I have had. Well, so why don't I become a, a Hindu or a New Ager? Well, because I have reasons to believe what I believe, and I know that what I have is truth, and I'm not just there because I've had an experience like they have. There's something along, I'm not, I'm not against experiences, but what I'm saying, there's something behind it that says this is, this is the truth. Yeah, that's good. How have you, throughout the years, kind of developed this week-long teaching? Um, is, is there certain uh-huh. like, four things that you really get on, or well, every time, or? Well, that's a great story, too. Um, I'm not teaching anything that I learned in seminary. Well, I I take that back. Of course I'm teaching some things. But in other words, what I'm doing these days 
is not the result of, of, my, of my seminary training or even just my you know, everyday you know, input from my home churches and my own study uh, of, of Scripture. What happened to me was, is that when I, I mentioned that uh, early on, uh, my wife and I, just after we got married, we went to Lausanne, Switzerland to do the SOE. We actually predated the DTS program. They didn't have a DTS program back there, so I never did a DTS, and some people say that's painfully obvious that I've never done a DTS, but the truth of the matter was the old SOE was essentially a DTS, so we're over there doing it. They had a speaker that came and spoke there by the name of Dr. Glenn Martin, who's deceased now, and he was the chairman of the, of the Department of, of, uh, of um, Social Sciences at Indiana Wesleyan University. And he was one of the speakers that came and spoke in this school. And this guy was an intellectual. Yeah. I mean, very intellectual. He came and he gave this uh, teaching on this topic of the biblical Christian worldview. And... This guy was so far over the heads. This was a pretty international group in that SOE. There we had, I think we had, there was probably about 40 of us in the school and probably from at least 10 different countries. And so, uh, and some of the people were pretty well educated. I liked to think I was one of them because at this point I, I had been to college. So I prided myself of having, you know, a little bit of gray matter and that kind of thing. Well, this guy... What he was saying was just kind of going over our heads. But I caught enough of it to understand this guy is teaching something that is absolutely vital and it's something that is not being taught in the church. The idea of having an integrated world world view, not separating the spiritual and the secular and all those kinds of things. But this, this was an understanding and I caught enough of it and looking around and just kind of seeing the blank looks on people's faces. And I sat there in that room in Lausanne, Switzerland, and I said to myself, I'm going to master this material and I'm going to teach it. Because I knew that what my strength was, was in taking more complex things and making it simple. And so I started from that time and got my hand. I, I developed a relationship with Dr. Martin. He kind of became a mentor for me. It was long distance, but uh, giving me stuff to read, giving me different things like that. So I didn't go into college or anything. I just I just began, began studying. And this was from 1979. And the first time I ever taught on this subject, by the time I felt I was ready to do it and had an opportunity to do it, was 1984. And then from 1984, launched a, a ministry for me speaking on this topic of the biblical Christian worldview. And not just the biblical Christian worldview, but contrasting with other worldviews. And asking the question, uh, or answering the question of not knowing just what we believe, but why, why we believe it. It's not, it is not classical uh, apologetics. It's not like opening a Josh McDowell book and reading, which is great. I'm not putting that down. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not, it's not apologetics where I say, if somebody says this to you, you say this. And you need you know, these points to do it. I'm trying to get people to think and actually have a renewed mind. Because uh, uh, Paul tells us in, in Romans 12 that if we're not going to be conformed to the pattern of this world, it's not by the renewing of the heart. 
although that's important. It's not by the renewing of the soul, although that's important. It's not by renewing of the spirit. All those things are important. But if we're not going to conform to the pattern of this world, we have to have a renewed mind. And that's not just a thing of saying, oh, okay, so in Jesus' name, renew this mind. No. It's starting to use that mind. It's believing what God has said when he said, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Think of that. The God of the universe, the God who knows everything, the infinite eternal God wants to engage us intellectually. Mm. What a privilege. What a privilege. And God wants to, most of us, most of us, you know, to the degree that we've heard teaching in in the church about about the mind had to do with impure thought life. Mm -hmm. Good topic. We struggle with that. But the brain is not a sex organ, and God didn't give it to us just to see whether or not we would lust. Mm. He gave it to us to use. Yeah. And I don't think we use it enough in the church. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. That is good. I want to come sit in on your lectures now. Um, what, uh, in all your time in ministry, what would you say has been the highlight of your time in ministry? Wow, that is really a difficult question to answer. Um, Boy, if I had more time to think about it, I could maybe think of a incident. But, you know, the thing that just comes to, comes to my mind is, is that the, it's the overall that I have had the privilege of teaching thousands of, of young people. You know, when I, when I got, got started in the ministry, as I said, I was, I was pastoring a church. And back in those days, the way my thinking was is that if you're going to be in ministry, you're a pastor. That's what you do. So that was the path that I went on. And I was never comfortable in it. Oh, I loved the teaching. Mm-hmm. I loved to get up Sunday morning, you know, and teach or Sunday night. We did, it was kind of the typical, those that know the, the Calvary Chapel system, you know, in the morning was more of a topical thing, but in the evenings it was teaching through the Bible, uh, book by book. And I loved all that kind of thing. What I didn't like was dealing on a daily basis with the people, you know, and particularly when, you know, somebody would come to me with a problem, you know, and I'd sit down and I'd, you know, counsel them with, you know, my quote wisdom and all that kind of thing. Two days later, they'd be back in my office. Same problem, same questions, hadn't applied anything that I gave to them, and I didn't have the patience for it. Well, it suddenly, uh, at, at some point, and actually it wasn't until I joined Youth with a Mission that I realized there was the problem is that I wasn't called to be a pastor. If you have a pastor's heart, you have a, you have a heart for that right, stuff. Right. God made me a teacher, not a pastor. So I found a home in Youth with a Mission, and I have had the privilege over the last 25 years. I said, after 25 years, more than that, I've been, in, I've been in Hawaii for the last 30 years, and so I was in Waiwan, but I don't even, I, I, I don't know how long it's been. Over, for over 30 years. Yeah. I've had the opportunity to go all over the world and sit down and teach a motivated group of people. And I'm not putting down the people, you know, sitting in the pews at church. But let's just be honest. When you've paid money and you've set aside a time and you go off and you say, I want to be in this intensive uh, uh, discipleship training. And then I'm not only just to sit there for the knowledge, but I'm then going to take that training and I'm actually going to go out and, and, and put it to use. And world world evangelism that is a highly motivated group and it's and I've had the privilege of of teaching thousands of young people you know the you know, leaving aside the mega churches that we have in the world today the average church pastor you know is maybe what got 100 200 people in their church and of course there's always turnover and all that but you know an average pastor might not 
actually reach out to more than you know four or five hundred people in their whole ministry. Well, I've ha- I've had the privilege of having uh, a, hopefully a positive impact on literally thousands of young people, and particularly that are really motivated to go out and do something. And uh, I'd have to say that's yeah. that's been the the, the, the the highlight. That's awesome. Uh, a question just came to my mind: when you're teaching on worldview, but you're not teaching. Uh, Westerners, is that a different? Do you have to approach that from a, a different angle? No, because the principles of the biblical worldview are the same. Mm-hmm. They're they're universal. Mm-hmm. You're ver- universal, and they can be applied to almost about almost any culture. And uh, you know what I believe is that is that every culture, uh, uh, God has. You can see God's fingerprints in every culture, mm-hmm. but you can also see the devil's fingerprints in every culture. Mm-hmm. So. What you have to understand is you go into any cross-cultural situation, you chew the meat and you spit out the bones. And so there are things in all cultures that have to be affirmed, and there are things in all cultures that have to be uh, abandoned and changed. So, uh, but the principles of God's kingdom uh, are, are, are universal. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more, but little bit more about uh, worldview, because I mean, I think that... Uh-huh. Maybe this is a topic that people aren't really familiar with. Mm-hmm. Is there certain key foundations that are part of Christian worldview? Yeah, they are. Um, and in fact, uh, what I would argue is the most important one is uh, I know later you're going to ask me about three things. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, one of those three things that I was going to say uh, about that I'd have to have to say now. And that's that the biblical worldview makes no distinction between what we so-called called the spiritual world and the secular world. So for example, you, your first question to me was, how long have you been in ministry? And you remember I said, okay, I'll give you a, a simple answer. But I actually object to the question. And what I mean by objecting to the question is, is that this is one of the, the whole problems. Because in the church, we have this, this in my view, this dichotomy between the spirit, the so-called spiritual world, and what I mean by that is the things that go on within the four walls of the church, and the secular world about the things that we consider that don't go on within the four walls of the church. Mm-hmm. We have this 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 dichotomistic uh, separation of thinking about that these are two separate realms that exist, and that the Christian should have as little to do with this so-called secular side as we do on the spiritual side. But what I would argue is, is that there is no distinction, no distinction, and that is the, one of the, the most important principles of the biblical Christian worldview. There is no distinction between the spiritual and the secular. So what does that mean? When you ask me how long I've been in ministry, or when people talk about ministry, what they're usually talking about is, you could say, how long have you been involved in working with people within the four walls of the church? And I don't mean literally within the four walls, but you know, there's things that are associated with the church. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about a very narrow category of things that, that you could be. You could be a pastor. You could be an evangelist. You could be a missionary. You're already, you know, we're running out of stuff already here, and God help you if you're a woman. And we think of that as being ministry. And on top of that, 
we often, we think of being in the ministry. A, a, a phrase that literally almost turns my stomach is when people say, I'm in full-time ministry. And I ask myself the question, so what does that mean for other Christians? We're part-timers? What are we? The word ministry simply means to serve. And so I would argue that a person who is called by God to be a pastor is no different than somebody who's called by God to be a plumber. Why? Because there is no distinction between the spiritual and the sacred. You're not called to be a pastor or or quote in full-time Christian ministry because you're somebody special. You're on the highest rung of the spiritual ladder or that you're the, the God's special person. Everybody is God's special person. And every aspect of life... Look, let me put it to you this way. The most spiritual thing that anybody can do is to obey God. There's nothing more spiritual than that. And if God was saying to you, you know, I, I, I think for the next six months or so, I want you to be flipping burgers at McDonald's. And you say, oh, that's not spiritual enough. And said, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to fly to the Amazon jungle and find a, 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 an unreached people group and take the gospel to them. Oh, that sounds so spiritual. But you know what? You're in sin. Because the most spiritual thing that anybody can do is obey God. So now, if in the will, and the only question that a Christian ever needs to ask about what they're doing is, God, is this your will? So if the will of God right now is that you're pastoring a church somewhere, or if the will of God is that you're an electrician, or an auto mechanic, or an accountant, or this or that, you're in the will of God, and that is your ministry. That's good. You're serving. And, the, and when you think about it, it's really in life, is it, isn't that really, really true? There's no hierarchy. You know, on Sunday morning, I need a pastor, don't I? I need that because I need to be fed. But on Monday, I may need an auto mechanic because my car broke down. And on Tuesday, I may need a doctor because I got the flu. And every day of the week, I need a farmer or a rancher because I need vegetables and bread and meat to feed myself and my family. And if we could wave our magic wand and suddenly, you know, we had another Jesus movement and all the world was saved. Everybody's saved, right? The whole world is saved. So we don't have to do evangelism anymore. Don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. Well, let me ask a question. In, that, in this now Christian world, are we going to quit eating? No. Then somebody in the will of God has got to be the farmer. And somebody in the will of God has got to be the truck driver to get the food from the farm to the city. And somebody in the will of God is going to have to own the grocery store. And somebody in the will of God is going to have to be the checker that checks you out. You get the idea? Are we still going to wear clothes? Are we going to drive cars? Somebody in the will of God has got to do all those things. And those are to be places of service. And too often, we think of the secular worldview as a place, well, that's where you go and you make your, that's where you make money. And that's good. It's good that there are people in the secular world making money so they can bring it in the church and put it in the offering plates so that those of us, quote, in the ministry can do the ministry. Well, that's the wrong thinking. The wrong thinking is that a Christian doesn't do anything that he does for money. We do it because of what, uh, in in Matthew chapter 5, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's why we do what we do, whether it's being a pastor, an evangelist, an auto mechanic, a ballerina, 
a, a, a certified accountant, a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief. doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. You're doing it for the kingdom of God. And if you're doing that, then all these things will be added to you. God, you're, you're, you'll have your clothing. You'll have your food. And depending on the, the will of God and what you've gone into as your, of your place of service in God's world, you may be very abundantly compensated for what you do. But that's not why you do it. You do it because it's your calling. It's your calling from God. We need to reintegrate the church with the, with the world around us. And that's what I'm trying to get across to the students. That's good. So good. Um, what has been your biggest struggle in ministry and how did you overcome it? Well, how do you know I've overcome it? <laughs> that, that, that's, a, that's a foregone conclusion. Well, no. Um, huh. You know, uh, what I would have to say is, uh, actually, I have overcome it, but not because I did anything in particular to do it. But when I was younger, uh, particularly when I was full-time as a, in the youth with a mission, uh, even though I was teaching this subject, my mind was not completely renewed. So in the sense that here I'm teaching this to people, but I didn't fully figure it out. I still thought that what I was doing was a lot more important than some other things. And so there was a time where I was gone on the road for sometimes 30 weeks a year out teaching. And it was wonderful. It was heady. It was like I said, it, it, what a privilege to go and do that. Right. And particularly because, I mean, just to, just to be honest, you go to these places, they've invited you. Right. You're, you're viewed as your, you know, they wouldn't invite you unless they thought you were somebody. Right. So I get there, they all respect me. They think I'm somebody and, uh, and, and I'm treated really well. well why wouldn't I want to go out and do this? Plus, I'm traveling around the world and all that. Well, I left my family 30 weeks a year. And that is not anything that I can fix. In other words, that time, that those times that I wasn't there, you know, for my kids' dance recital or whatever it was, can't get that back. Can't get that back. And I realize now that I put ministry above, above my family. And that is a regret that I have. Uh, my kids don't hate me <laughs> or anything like that. And uh, so uh, the, the reason I say I've overcome it is because now that I, I don't teach 30 weeks a year, uh, some, for two reasons. One, I own a business. But number two, I don't get invited 30 weeks a year. And uh, I'm not abandoning, abandoning my children because they're grown. So that part of it is, is past. But I regret uh, that, uh, uh, I, I mean, and, and I can't say what it was. I can't say, well, if it had been 25 weeks, that would have been right. I don't know what the magic number was, but, um, uh, I regret uh, that I was gone from my family for too long, too much. Yeah. The, the core of the show is the, the three practical tips, uh, that you give our listeners on how to do ministry. Well, you kind of hit on that first one of, uh, no distinction between <coughs> secular and spiritual, um, That's correct. But what would uh, what would two and three be? Well, I have to say a couple more things about number two if we've got the time. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm going to talk about number one first, so I'll okay. come back to that. Right. The, the, the first and what I believe is the most important thing, and by, by the way, I had the advantage when you told me you were going to do this. Mm-hmm. I took a look. You know, you've got some other podcasts. I didn't listen to them, but mm-hmm. you, you have a really neat little thing where you can see the summary, and it gives the three points. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I could see that that that, that uh, a lot of the standard things, and I don't mean standard like, oh, those were simple and I'm going to give you something extremely profound that right. they didn't. But they covered the things like trusting the Holy Spirit and all that kind of thing. So I want to take a completely different approach to it like that. Yeah. I believe that the most important thing, uh, I'm talking to people who are... Uh, I have to choke a little bit saying this word, are in full-time ministry. Uh, so now you all of you listening know, I don't believe that there is such a thing as full-time ministry. Or to put it another way, we're all full-timers. But nonetheless, those whose full-time ministry is within the church, I say, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. And what do I mean by that? You know what? You are not God's man or woman of power for the hour. Mm. I'm not saying that you're, that you're not God's man or woman. You are. Just like everybody else in your congregation is God's man and woman. And you are not some special anointed person because you teach the Bible. So I'm sort of repeating myself of what I've said before. You are a function in the body of Christ just like everybody else. And I know we'll all say the right thing. We'll all say, oh, yes, you know, there's no distinction. But we do make a distinction. We do. And those of us that, that are pastors and that kind of thing, somehow, I mean, this is me you're talking to, guys. I know that we all think that somehow we're somebody special. Well, the truth is, is that we are not. Don't take yourself too seriously. You teach the Word of God, but you know what? Every time you open your mouth, you're saying things that are true, you're saying things that are half true, and you're saying things that aren't true at all. And that is part and parcel of every pastor on this planet because nobody knows everything. Nobody is so full of the Holy Spirit and so righteous and so right and so well studied that Every pearl that comes out of your mouth is, is just a, a, a precious stone. It isn't. Every one of us are finite, fallen human beings, without exception. Now, you may be an expert, finite, fallen human being when it comes to a Bible expository, but nonetheless, you are what you are. And so nobody knows everything. I don't know everything. Nobody listening to this broadcast knows everything. Billy Graham doesn't know everything. Lauren Cunningham doesn't know everything. There's one person who knows everything, and that's God. And we ain't him. And so don't take yourself overly seriously. Understand that you're not going to be right about everything. And be open when somebody comes and challenges you. Say, how, how could you... you pew sitter come and challenge the man in front at the, at the, at the pulpit. Well, we need to be challenged because we're all a mixture of these things. You think you hear from God? Great. We all hear from God. But you know what? Sometimes we just had too much pizza the night before. Sometimes we just get it wrong. And you know what? Oftentimes, Instead of admitting that we're wrong about things, we say, what well, was the devil or somebody disobeyed or somebody this? You know what? Every one of us blow it. Don't take yourself too seriously. That would be the number one thing I'd say to anybody in ministry. That's good. That's good. 
Yeah, and then that second one was your no distinction between secular and spiritual, right? Right, it was. So making no distinction between the spiritual and the secular. And I want to speak to a specific thing because now, hopefully, I'm there are pastors that are that are actually listening to this. I want to expand on this in the area to say, you know, uh, and I'm speaking as an American now, but again, there's there are applications to any nation and any culture. Our country is in big trouble, is in big trouble. And I believe that the main reason that we're in big trouble is this dichotomistic thinking between the spiritual and the secular. And it is the place of the pastors to once again integrate those things and, and, and get our people to understand that it's not the unbelievers. You see, we like, to, we like to sit, we get together in our Bible study, you know, our home study groups, and we start whining and complaining. And it's, oh, look at the, look at the, the, the media. You know, they never get the story right. And, oh, look at the education system. Oh, the joke they teach our kids. Look at the arts and the entertainment. Oh, just the violence and the sex and the, all this kind of stuff. Oh, oh, we sit there and whine and, and complain. Look at, look at the laws that they pass, the unrighteousness and all these things. Guys, Jesus didn't ask those people to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He asked us to be those things. You know what? No amount of whining complaining and blame shifting is going to change anything in any of our cultures. The reason why our cultures are getting darker and darker and darker, it's not their fault. It's our fault. Because we have said, we just give us the Christian ghetto. We will just, just, that's where we want to be. It's a Christian ghetto and Christians, that secular world is, it's out there. We, we, We need to be as far from that as we can be. Well, you know what? As the Christian content empties out of all of the different structures and, and, and institutions of our society, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to get... And, and, and what is our complaining going to do? Is, are are, the, are the, the, the non-Christian legislators of our world suddenly going to say, why? I believe I will make godly legislation because... The Christians are complaining. And the Woody Allens and the Steven Spielbergs of this world, they're going to say, why, I'm going to make godly, godly uh, entertainment because the Christians are whining. The only way that we're going to have right laws, right education, things that, are, that, are, that have true value in the, in the field of, of entertainment, getting the story right in the media, all those things, is that if we go there, understanding that there's no distinction and that these are callings from God. And, you know, one of the reasons I believe that there are so many small churches, there's a lot of small struggling churches in America. And I want to caveat here, you know, out there listening, you may have a small church in America, so you have to judge what, what God is saying to you. But you know what? Everybody always thinks, you know, there's a little church here, but you've got to start a little church over here. Why? Because they're not quite doing it right. Plus, how many jobs are there really for those of us that, quote, want to be in the ministry? I believe that there are hundreds and hundreds, thousands of, quote, pastors that are like a square peg in a round hole. 
They want to serve God, quote, full time, but because they're caught up in this spiritual secular dichotomy, they think that the only way they can do that is to pastor a church somewhere. Well, they end up being mediocre pastors, but not because they're mediocre people. You see, they would have been a revered educator. They would have been a, 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 a statesman in, this, in, in the legislature. They would have been uh, a, a, a doctor on the cutting edge of, of, of some sort of scientific research that he could give glory to God for and th think what an influence that would be on life and society. If we can get this thing out of our heads about, about this distinction. So now going full circle to what I was talking about here, that's the job of the pastor to do that. And you know what? We can sit in our churches and pray and pray and pray about our culture falling apart. Someday God may act, and he may act in a way that we don't want him to act because as things get worse, that could be judgment. But you know what I would put forward to you? By the mercy of God, those of us that live in, 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 in a republic like, like the United States or other democratic countries, we have the right to vote. And if the Christians would understand that the political arena is just another place where we are to have our voice and we would get out and vote and get involved. I mean, I, I got to tell you, my hat is off to the gay rights movement. My hat's off to them. Look what they have accomplished in a very short period of time. It wasn't very many years ago that, that, that being gay, I, I, I mean, people who didn't like gays or hated gays, that's always been wrong. That's not a virtue within the church. Mm -hmm. But to understand that, that that behavior is wrong. But we have abortion, we have now gay marriage, we have all of these different, di different things that are there. I'm here to tell you, if the people of God had risen up and been a voice and, and, and just, if nothing more than just voted, why aren't pastors in their, in their congregations saying, telling everybody, you need to register to vote. Now, I'm not saying that they should stand in the pulpit and say that they should, vote, should have voted for Romney or they should have voted for Obama. That's not their place. But they could stand up and say, you need to register to vote. I, if I had a church today, I would have handed out voter registrations in that church and basically almost to the degree I could almost put a gun to everybody's head to get them to, to, to sign up to vote. And then I would have said, this is what Romney stands for. This is what Obama stands for. This is what the Bible says. Now, you need to get out and vote. If we had done that, things would be very different in this country. I'm not talking about Shangri-La. I'm not talking about heaven on earth. I'm not talking about that. But we could have a society that had relative peace, relative prosperity, and an environment that is conducive to the spread of the gospel as opposed to being hostile to the spread of the gospel. And I want to say one more thing here, yeah. and I mean this very, very sincerely, and I hope people, you know, and uh, I'm not saying this is a, uh, this is a prophecy because I don't consider myself to be prophetic, but we are this close to the, gospel, the, the public preaching of the gospel being outlawed in America as hate speech. Because our message is we're right and other people are wrong. Well, that can't be tolerated any longer in the United States of America. We tell people that are gay, lesbian, transsexual, 
that that's a sin. That can't be tolerated any longer in the United States of America. And because we're sitting by and doing it, and we're not getting involved in these lesser, and I don't believe they're lesser battles, but for no, no, I have no other way to put it right now. These lesser battles, we've let them win these things. We, in the old days, you know what? It's not that there was any time where the majority of people in America were Christian, but there was a time where people respected Christians. You understand? They, they, sure, they were sinners, but they respected the fact that we had, had, had virtue and, and believed that there was right and wrong and said that these things are sins and, you know, and these are the ways that you should live, live your life. People didn't always agree with them. People didn't always uh, live up to them, but they at least respected us for those review, those things. We now live in a society in the United States of America where we are no longer good guys. We're bad guys. We are bad people. We are bigots. We are, are homophobes. We are all of these things, and we are this close, this close to the public preaching. Now, when I say, when I say public preaching, I'm not saying that you won't be able to have church, but what I mean is says, Keep it inside the four walls of the church, but forget doing, doing evangelism. Right. Because that's hate speech. You're going to make people feel excluded. You're going to make people feel bad about themselves. Look what's happening on our college campuses right now. Look what's happening. And anybody that thinks that what I'm saying is true, I'm not speaking prophetically. You don't have to be a prophet. All you got to do is open your eyes and see what is happening. And it's right at the feet of the church. And pastors need to quit being afraid of the IRS that somehow they might lose their tax status if, if they get too political or whatever. And we need to start having some guts. Some pastors are afraid, oh, I don't want to say anything political because I know we've got Democrats and Republicans in the church. I don't want to offend anybody. Well, isn't that interesting coming from a group of people that spend our whole time telling people that they're sinners and they need to repent, that we're afraid about, about making somebody feel bad? Come on, guys. We need to get, get with it and, and rescue our country before we get to the point to where the only recourse is judgment. And if the judgment of God comes on, then we're going to live in a very different, different world. And uh, it's not going to be pleasant for anybody, even us in the church. That was a long-winded answer. It's <laughs> good stuff, though. But that was number two. All right, what's number three? Number three is to be real, not religious. To be real, not religious. And what do I mean by that? All three of these really go together about not taking yourself seriously, number one, not having a distinction between the spiritual and secular, number two, and then coming down to to being real. Um, We need to get out of the Christian ghetto where we have our own little language and our own little thing and understand that we're part of the, uh, a part of the whole culture. Now, I don't mean conforming to them. That's not what I mean. But in other words, you know, uh, it, w- when, when we walk out on the streets, and again, I'm exaggerating here, but we walk out on the streets and you walk up to somebody and say, have you been washed in the blood? Now, you know, that may mean something to us. I mean, some people might be offended right now by me putting it that way because we're talking about the precious blood of Jesus. Well, who knows that? We do. They don't. They look at that and they think, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? We need to be relevant to our culture. And, you know, I I love the fact that Jesus, you know, when Jesus went out to the multitude, he spoke in parables, right? Mm -hmm. And if you analyze the parables, think about the parables. 
there were lots of different topics. But if you were to take them all and put them into categories, you'd find that the majority of all the parables, which, and what is a parable? It's a, it's a story about common things to try to get a spiritual message across. Well, what was the common story? It was about fishing, farming, and shepherding. Who was Jesus' audience? Fishermen, farmers, and shepherds. But our problem is, is, is that we all say Jesus is our, is our example. But instead of doing what Jesus did, we just say what Jesus said. And so you go, you're an evangelist. Say you're in New York, you go into to, uh, Harlem, an inner city area. You go into a basketball court somewhere. You've got 20 or 30 young black teenagers playing basketball. And we walk up to them and say things like, a sore went out to sow seed. You know, and they're looking at you like, are you kidding me? You know, you're lucky if you get out with your life. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm not going to say what Jesus said. I'm going to do what Jesus did. And so, this is going to sound corny, but you'd say something like, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a slam dunk. You know, maybe you get their attention then. Mm. Be real. Be real. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the meaning of scripture that matters, not the words. Jesus could have, you know, you, you suppose Jesus knew scripture? He could have done nothing but opened his mouth and did nothing but quoted Scripture. Of course, that would have been the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. He could have done nothing but quote Scripture, but instead he told stories. Why? Because he knew that, you know, sometimes we treat the Bible like it's, the, like it's a quadrinity instead of a trinity. You know, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. Well, the teach, it's the meaning of the Bible. It's not the words of the Bible. Like if I just quote enough Bible verses at somebody, it's going to be this thing is going to happen. No, it's the meaning of scripture that matters. And we need to be real and understand who our audience is. So if I'm going to go out and minister to a, a, a group of young people in a park playing basketball, I'm going, to, I'm going to use vocabulary and examples and even the way I dress and all those things in a certain, in a certain way. If I'm going to go do ministry in the old folks' home, you know, then I'm probably going to put on a tie, you know, and instead of taking my guitar, maybe we play a few old hymns out of the hymnals. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we need to be aware of who our audience is. We need to be real with where people are at and not, not be religious. Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, I think those are three really important things. They're, they're not the three most important things, but I use these because I kind of saw what other people have been saying. I thought, well, there's no point saying the same thing over and over again. So don't take yourself too seriously, number one. Number two, make no distinction between the secular and the sacred. And number three, be real, not religious. Those are good. Those are good. Uh, last question, what's been inspiring you lately? Has there been any uh, book resource teaching conversation that's just really, really getting you going? Uh, well, I actually, actually, I've been reading uh, really perf what I believe is a really profound book by uh, the author Oskinis. Um, and it's called a, a free people's suicide, and uh, you know you, you probably pick up from you know the things that I'm saying. You know I'm really into being involved in in, in the culture, and I'm very politically involved with, with with things and trying to get the, what I believe are the right people into into uh, elected office, particularly you know in the state of Hawaii where I live. Um, but the interesting thing about this book uh, is two things. Number one, Oskinis, he's, he's an, a European. Mm -hmm. So he's talking 
about this book, A Free People's Suicide, is about freedom in America. And the thing that's refreshing about it is that because he's not an American, he's able to look at it more objectively. Because most of us, you know, we kind of find ourselves trapped either in the political left or the political right. Well, he's able to kind of sit above the whole thing and look at, at both and do a gr- critique of, uh, of both that is very, very good and very informative. But the, the essence of this book is, is that he's saying that it is the thing that has made America great is our emphasis on freedom. But the thing that is America's downfall and is destroying America is our emphasis on freedom. It's like two sides of the same coin. And I've always actually believed that. Your greatest strength is always potentially your greatest weakness. And obviously we don't have time to talk about this whole book. But there's a quote uh, from from, uh, John Adams, who is uh, uh, the uh, 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 second president of the United States, that sums up in a way what I think what Os Guinness is getting at in his book. And he's saying that the American Constitution can only work if the people are virtuous. Now, not perfect, but virtuous. And that sums up in a way what Guinness is saying. What he's saying there is that it is the emphasis on freedom that made America great. But the context of, of, of our founding fathers was a Christian context where people believed in right and wrong. Once again, not talking about Shangri-La. I mean, America's never been a place where the majority of the people were born again, saved people. But it was a culture that respected scripture and culturally, uh, by and large, conformed itself to the teaching of, of scripture. And so what they were saying is, is that freedom works when people uh, have self-government. In other words, I'm able to govern myself. I know that there is ultimate right and wrong. So now I'm free to pursue doing the right thing. But as the content of God has gone out of our culture, what that has shifted to is not freedom to do something, freedom to do the right thing. It's to freedom from something. So now I need to be free from anybody telling me what to do. I need to be free from, from saying that any, any, any sexual uh, proclivity that I want to indulge in is wrong. I need to be free from somebody telling me that, that I shouldn't drink myself to oblivion. I should be free to do all these things. And so what happens is it, is it devolves into to chaos and anarchy. And the thing that strikes me about, about that is, is that, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting thing where in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, he says, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has made us free. Stand in that freedom and do not be entangled again in the yoke of, of bondage. Mm-hmm. Now think about that for a second. Now, what was a yoke? A yoke, back in those days, that's what you put on cattle in order to guide them so you could plow the fields or pull a cart or whatever. It was a thing so that you could control that, that animal. Paul's saying, saying that we need to be free of the yoke of bondage, correct? Yeah. For a lot of us, because of, of modern America, that's what we think freedom is. Freedom is throwing off a yoke. 
not having a yoke on you. But you know what? Jesus in, in Matthew 11 said a very interesting thing. He said, come unto me, all you that are, that are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you put those two verses together and it's exactly what Os Guinness is saying there. Freedom is not being unyoked. Freedom is having a yoke that is an easy burden and a light burden. In other words, the yoke of, it's not, it's, we, we have a yoke and it does, it does have a weight and there is a burden, but it's a lightweight and it's an easy burden and it's the freedom to do the right thing. And so what happens to us is that in a way, metaphorically here, it's like we come to Jesus, we break off this yoke of bondage that we've had of sin and wrong, and then we think we're free to go out and do what we do. But you know what happens? Then you, and the dog ends up returning to his vomit. If you want to remain free, freedom is not being yokeless. It's having the right yoke. It's having the yoke of Jesus. So it's freedom to do the right thing, as opposed to freedom from anybody telling me what I can do. And that's why, why democracy in America is taking us down and down and down, because we've gone from the, as it were, the yoke of Jesus on us to being, thinking that freedom is just being yokeless. Anyway, it's a profound book. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of tough sledding. Uh, I actually, just so, so people don't think that I'm, you know, I'm so intelligent, I have had to read it twice to, to get what he's, all that he's saying. Profound book. Rick, you gave us a lot to think about. I really appreciate that. That's why I love spending any time together. You just get my mind going, which I appreciate which is good, the time. Which is good, yeah. Would you just close us out by uh, praying for our listeners? Oh, I'd love to. Father, I just want to thank you uh, that you sit on your throne and kingdoms come of the earth and kingdoms go. But the church will endure. And I thank you for that, Lord. So in that, we can rest and be easy. But at the same time, Lord, I believe that you've also said to us that we are to take dominion over this planet and that we are to go out into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I pray that you would help us to do our part to continue to live in a society where we have the freedom to do that without us having to give up our lives. And I think today, Lord, of the Christians being slaughtered in the Middle East. God have mercy on them and God have mercy on us that it doesn't come to that. And I believe that that ultimately is our choice whether we will rise up and stand up and do the right thing and being like those, those, those virgins that were, that were ready and prepared for their Lord's coming and doing the right thing until he came. We don't know when you're going to come back, Lord. Help us not to sit back on our laurels and look at the world as it's falling apart and saying, oh, great, Jesus is coming soon. We don't know when you're coming. And some awfully bad things can happen in the world without you coming. Help us to, to rise up and stand up to do our part to leave to our children and our grandchildren 
a world where they will have relative peace, relative prosperity, and live in a society that is conducive and friendly to the spread of the gospel as opposed to being hostile. Thank you, Lord. I thank you for, for, for having me to be born in a country where I have the freedom to say what I've said right now because many places I could be right now, these, this message would be taken and I'd be arrested. Thank you, God, that I have that freedom. Help me to take on the yoke of Jesus to be free to do the right thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Doing Ministry Well, you can help us out by rating, commenting, and subscribing on iTunes and sharing this podcast with your friends. Check out the podcast notes to find out more about today's guests and other resources mentioned on this episode. To find out more about Doing Ministry Well, check out our website, www.doingministrywell.com. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestion on who we should interview next, email us at doingministrywell at gmail.com. To find out more about me, your host, visit my blog at www.jimjessbaker.com. That's www.jimjessasinjessicabaker.com. All links are Amazon affiliate links and help us out when you make a purchase through them.